This is part one of episode four, Making Creative Space. I'm back after a long hiatus with an episode that I recorded very early on in the process of making this podcast. Today I'm thrilled to interview my good friend Nat Magnuson in the very studio he helped me design. Nat is a photographer, musician, set dresser, woodworker, and entrepreneur. And this interview was so in-depth, we decided to break it into two parts. Today, we'll be discussing the importance of our relationship with the spaces we occupy and explore a common language many creatives share. Be sure not to miss part two, where we take an in-depth look at photography. I'm Stephen Levitt, and this is the Language of Creativity Podcast. This is one of those that just kept going and transforming and moving from one key to the other. And then I realized it was done. It, it was like amazing. I kept trying to find out where it was going and it didn't want me to know until it was time. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Language of Creativity podcast. <laughs> I'm Steve Levitt and I'm here in the iCreate Sound studio with artist extraordinaire Nat Magnuson. Thank you very much. This is probably podcast number four and we're here. My friend Nat was back in town from an adventure as he does. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I figured I might as well get him in while he's still present in Uh, this locale. I am trying to be present. That's not always in the same location, though. Well, I would call you multi-locational. <laughs> right. The the worst question that people ask me is, where do you live? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like almost like when people ask you, what do you do? Well, I mean, you know, like, do you want to know where to send mail? Do you want to know uh, uh, what my physical location is? Or do you want to know where I am? which could be a very complicated question well really i feel like the mountains and the streams are my home because those are the places that uh make me at ease those are the places that the space um demands nothing of me um and and uh i get to participate in always ever since i've known you which has been over 10 years i think probably maybe close to 15 now Nature it's has getting been, up there. Yeah. <laughs> Nature has been a huge passion of yours. One which I think you've kind of slowly reintroduced me to. Well, and one that your studio is embracing in its location. Yeah. Why don't you tell the people how we met? <laughs> so I, uh, I, I was a student at a photography school and I wanted to shoot, uh, photograph a snowboarder upside down in a studio. I wanted to do a plume of snow 
And uh, because I was doing it in a studio and not out on the mountain, meant that I needed a stunt rigger. I called a few different people and um, Lane Levitt gave me a call back and he's like, yeah, let's meet up. Um, I love doing projects with students. And so he gave me a call. We sat down. We started talking. And um, after we did the shoot, he's like, you should meet my son. (laughs) He's like, you guys would be friends. You know, that was funny because my dad calls me and he's like, I met this guy. You need to know. (laughs) You guys will hit it off. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's kind of funny because sometimes being creative is uh, a solo journey and sometimes creative being creative is a part of a group. And sometimes being creative is knowing what creative things go together. Um, And on that note, I would say your dad is very creative. I think he's kind of a master at a couple things. One is seeing what people are talented at and where they fit. And I know I've met a lot of phenomenal people through my dad. The other thing is, is he seems to be able to put ideas together in a way that no one has really thought about. So I would certainly think of him as one of the most creative people I know. Well, I would also say that the space and the trees and the area removed from other people means that you get the reflection time to find how things uh, go together. Well, he certainly knows how to pick real estate. (laughs) Yeah, it was ahead of its time. It was decades before other people thought it was a good idea. He found the diamond in the raw. I mean, definitely. We're here on like two and a half acres in kind of an area that used to be the middle of nowhere that is now sort of, I guess, in the middle of L.A. (laughs) Because L.A. just kept growing. (laughs) Um, It's not, actually. It's kind of off in in nature, and that's what people like about it. So, you know, i got to give a lot of props to my dad for seeing, you know, the diamond in the raw and plopping down investment, which was tiny back then in 1980-something, but now is really, it's a beautiful space. And for for those of you who have never been here, which is everybody... um, It's kind of the artist's favorite things when they come here is the outdoors that surrounds the studio and being kind of bathed in natural light that comes through the windows. I remember when we were picking the paint colors and trying to find something that would blend with the outdoors and not fight it. Right. Space is a funny thing. You know, like the science of uh, music, the science of psychology, uh, science of so many different things uh, feels like... The experts know about space, but it's not something that people take home with them. Space has the ability to create your world, to create how you interact, and what activities you encourage yourself to do. Right. Your physical space is a reflection of your headspace, I think. Yeah, it can be, but I also find that my mind is cluttered, and a cluttered space will keep my mind cluttered. But if I have the intention to create a space that allows my mind to relax, it's no longer a reflection. It's uh, an inventor of what I am able to do. 
It's funny because uh, my mind immediately jumped to an article that I saw clickbait headline for that was something like, creative people are messy. <laughs> you know, have messy space is a sign of creativity. Well, I yes, yes, because, you know, like Albert Einstein's desk is really, really messy, which means that he can't do A, B, C. He's got to jump straight to uh, X and then try to figure out how all the rest of the letters fit in because his desk doesn't make sense articulating what creativity is is part of what the language is right and for people to actually find uh, what their experience within creativity is is you have to go through a lot of silence and you have to go through a lot of miscommunication until you find what your rhythm is and, and until you find chaos yeah right and then uh, uh that's why creatives communicate pretty well together is because they've been through their own version of chaos they found their own language and even though i may be using different words i'm trying to communicate similar motifs even if they're not the same uh uh construct I think that's absolutely true. Funny because I've noticed that when I get together with creatives, it's just like you, you just let your guard down. <laughs> like, okay, here's someone who's not going to judge me for being weird or random or disorganized or, you know, needing my own way to do seemingly simple things. <laughs> Right. Or or think that the, the demons in my head somehow are a reflection of me. Um, uh, they're definitely part of me, but I feel like um, the, the demons and the children and all of those pretty sunsets all dance around in a swirling vortex um, that really is a wealth um, that you bring to everything that you do. Well, yeah. I mean, often I've been told that life would be boring without conflict. <laughs> and I think that's true for any, my wife is a book lover and that's what she says. It's like, of course there's struggle and conflict. Of course you're not perfect because life wouldn't be interesting if it were perfect. And you can't have a good story and a good resolution if you don't have the conflict. I think it's easy for us as creatives to sort of either want to sweep struggle under the rug or to short circuit that and just sort of avoid it. But I know that many creatives you know, really, really have gone through the dark night of the soul on a regular basis as a process and repeatedly as some of the best creatives I know headlong. I was at the doctor's appointment uh, the other day and they asked me, um, have you been struggling with depression? And the answer is, well, yeah, generally daily, a couple times a week, pretty bad. It's pretty normal. Not, not anything more than usual. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, so you're fine. And you're like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that's very cool about being friends with you is your ability to find the art in everything and to work your own process through, I mean, making a bookcase. <laughs> You know, I mean, you do woodworking, you do photography, um, you also do music and who knows what else. You know, I've been trying to figure out what it is that my art is or what my artist statement is or, or what it is um, that I want to become. And I think the answer is um, a perpetual student. Mm. I like challenging myself and I feel that my art is my journey. You know, it's funny because the last book that you lent me was Road Trip Nation. Yes. Such a good book. 
And I know that for you, not being tied down to a particular place is a big part of your creative expression and journey. Well, it has been because I've been searching for the right place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, maybe you're maybe that's the piece that you played at the beginning. It's just going. It just doesn't want to land anywhere. It just until it does. Yeah. And then it surprises you and still allows so much. Now you wrote that piece, right? Yeah, um one measure at a time. And I know a little bit about your process, but I'm going to ask it out loud for the benefit of the listeners. I know that you have the intention to eventually record your pieces on a real piano concerto. Right. Uh, Sibelius does a very poor job at uh, sustain and at expression. So right now you're writing your pieces in uh, music notation software for the Sibelius, right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, cool. How does that process work for you? Well, I've been told by my family that I can't write anything like you can write. How can you write like that? Well, the simple answer is I'm obsessive compulsive and my mind loops. Uh, It is my superpower. It's also my kryptonite. But that means that I can listen to things over and over in a fashion that makes me happy. Uh, and generally what I find is if I'm willing to explore while I'm looping, um, at the end of the loop, there's something else there. And every time I go around it, I hear something else that's after. And so I write one measure at a time. Um, you know, like you change, you change your process, you change the type of song, you change the construct, you change how it comes together. If you start a song with its uh, rhythm or you start its uh, song with the melody or you song, start the song with the chord structure. Um, but when I'm in the notation software, uh, I'll hit play and I'll listen to it and then I'll write what comes next. Um, I'm not always the one directing it. It's the one directing me. That's a very common experience for musicians, also word writers as well, to kind of feel this feeling of it coming through you, it coming from another source, a muse, a higher power. Well, Um, and then once you've done it, you're like, I'm never going to make anything good again. (laughs) And the answer is, is that process may have been just for that song, or maybe that process works for more than just one song, but... Yeah, you just got to keep trudging along. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned obsessive compulsive disorder because you in another life or a life you're you're hoping to adjust also work in the movie business as on-set dresser, is that correct? Yes. So you are utilizing your spatial memory quite frequently. Well, describe your job for me. What is what is the what does an on-set decorator do? So, say we want to shoot an overshot of um, an acting couple. They're having a fight or they're having a discussion or they're at a restaurant, right? Like over the shoulder. Over the shoulder, right? So, you're looking at the person talking and you have the context of what they're doing. But what you don't feel in the movie or the TV show is that there's not just two people in that conversation. There's about 50 or 75 or 150. It depends on how big the show is. Depends on how many people, but on set at any given time, right on set at any given time, which means that even though it's a small intimate room, 
there's no room for anybody unless everything's gone, everything moves. So you move everything out and then you bring everything back in. But that means that it needs to look the same. It needs to be consistent. Um, and then also once the camera picks its angle, there may be nothing behind it or there may be too much behind it or there may be something visually distracting, something too bright. Um, and the goal is, is for us to be able to relax into the conversation that the actors are having and for you to not know all the details that are going on. I love dressing a frame. I love making things feel simple, feel like you're part of part of the scene. So you just came back from the Tulip Festival yes. in Skagit Valley, Washington. Yes. And you were creating a art store at a sawmill. <laughs> tell me about tell me about that experience. We haven't actually caught up on that whole thing, like how oh, it went. So oh, tell well, tell me about what you did and and how it went. The comments I got from several of the artists that were in my store was, "Wow." that place really got transformed. It's a workshop. It's a space where there's sawdust, uh, dust everywhere, huge slabs of wood, 700 year old trees, random trees that have been in bays that had been underground, that had been in swamps, just an amazing backdrop of organic, I don't know, but the landscape of the wood was something that I wanted to build on. And a lot of the art was a little bit more abstract or a little bit more landscapey because the relationship between them felt a little bit better. I'm not finding the right words, I don't well, think. Well, but there was definitely, uh, having spent time with you at the NAM show, looking at old growth wood, there's something special for you with wood. When I am backpacking... When I've been just going through life, it's not the things that everybody else pays attention to that I hone in on. I was showing a picture to my brother, and he started zooming in, trying to find the lighthouse or the bird or the subject that the photo was of. When the photo that I took was of the location that I was at, which happened to be ocean and clouds, <laughs> it was a landscape that helped me relax because it wasn't about anything other than about me relaxing. Um, so when I'm doing the art store, I'm trying to create how you move through the space. And what's interesting is as customers come in, they walk to a specific thing and you're like, well, why do they walk there? And then you kind of play with, well, this quarter, this corner is getting ignored. Why is this corner getting ignored? You're like, oh, because it needs some light. Or maybe the art that I have in that corner is not displayed in a way that makes people walk that way. Or maybe the room is not set up for people to walk through organically. Um, it seems like the way you create the space creates how uh, you interact within it. Yeah. Well, I guess that's kind of what you helped me achieve in my own creative space here at my studio. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot from that. Uh, we hit a creative wall. 
Oh, you want to go back to the beginning? No, not the beginning. Well, we could not the beginning. Let's 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 go to the now and let's circle back to the beginning because I think it's a a story worth telling. You know, I remember uh, when we were trying to design the layout of the control room. uh, We were working with a very very small space. And I had had this idea of kind of stacking things like, you know, rack mounts in front of the desk. And you were like, Steve, no, like you can't, you will, that will create a heaviness in front of you visually in such a small room that will limit your ability to feel expansive and creative. And it was almost a visual illusion because like when you look through the window into the room from outside... The room looks really, really small. I mean, this desk is enormous. It's like three feet deep. But because of the way that we laid it out, when you walk in the door, it feels open and expansive. There's visual space. Well, taking the closet out always helped. Well, yeah. I mean, we had to do... (laughs) There was a lot that had to be done in this room. We were definitely making lemons out of lemonade. But, I mean, the, the magic that happened and the transformation that occurred um, with the space, I think, is... Well, first of all, a testament to your own ability as an interior decorator, number one, and your own intuition about what could work, but also your patience working with me, a complete construction novice who didn't have any idea of what, I mean, I knew what I liked and what I wanted, but they were all fighting each other. (laughs) Form and function. Musicians know what feels good within a song. Uh, Dancers know what feels good with their body. It's very difficult to be aware of something that is not within your understanding. But within the language of creativity, uh, there are crossovers. And I would say that everybody knows what feels good. They just may not be aware of how to get there or why it feels good. Welcome to break number one, where I get to tell you about what I do. My name is Stephen Levitt, and I'm a music producer with a soft spot for making recordings that go really deep. Advertisement alert, if you want to skip this part, go to about 23 minutes. As I've been recording and producing for way over 20 years, I have picked up all kinds of ideas and tricks, insights, hacks, and subtleties about the recording process, creativity, getting the most out of your performance and your collaborations. So I created I Create Sound, which is my artist advisement company. We help you answer questions regarding recording, music, and anything artistic audio related. I really don't want people to feel like their only choice is to go it alone. It's my goal to make it affordable to reach out to a professional who can guide you through the process, no matter what you're working on. If you want to find out more, go to icreatesound.com forward slash the language of creativity for a limited time. Speak to us no risk. See how we can help you create your best sound. Now back to the podcast. I was talking with an older gentleman who was up at the sawmill and um, he's like, my wife's really good at those things. <laughs> my wife's really good at decorating. I just have nothing to bring to that. And, and uh, you know, the simple activity of closing your eyes and recognizing 
where the dark and the light is and really what you're searching for is balance. So wait, walk me through this activity. So what did you ask him to do? Um, okay, so when you close your eyes, you want to feel relaxed. If you are not feeling relaxed when your eyes are closed, what's wrong? Um, is all the light on one side is there a really heavy feeling low it could be as simple as you need to change what rug you have in your house uh the rug is too black so of course you feel heavy um or that the window is too bright and everything else doesn't match and so you're always drawn outside and you never want to participate in your space so if you are able to close your eyes you're able to find that balance without judging what it is and then you're able to say oh i'm leaning this way why am i leaning this way and how do we balance it that's amazing i've done this exercise with you and i was surprised when you told me about the man at the sawmill because didn't he come back and say hey i tried it it worked he's like i just couldn't get it out of my head but, you know, see, and this is this is where I love this podcast because when you describe closing your eyes in a room and noticing the window or noticing a door or noticing a rug that you, for all purposes, cannot see because your eyes are closed. To right. me, that's that's like tapping into that sixth sense or whatever you want to call it is something that I've discovered about myself over the last several years. My propensity to connect with the feeling of things and people. And now that I'm aware of it, and you've kind of helped me with my space become aware of that, I'm realizing how much that affects me like all the time, wherever I go. It's a grocery store, you know, it's a museum, it's a house, it's whatever. I get a feeling from whatever space or object or person that I'm interacting with. And it's it's a strong feeling. Like, it's, it's very distracting sometimes. Well, and what is causing the problem can be complex, but it also can be very simple. Like, putting a plant too close to a doorway may be blocking your path. Or uh, let's talk about TVs. Mm. TVs happen to be the biggest decoration of our day, and they are a black hole. They just pull your energy towards them, which is great when you have a good couch and they're on. Yes. Right. And you're intending to engage with TV. Well, and I would say that probably this is the most intentional space that people create. I would say unintentionally, but if you put the TV with a good array of things to watch and a nice couch, you go and you sit down on the couch and you watch the TV. That is what the space is designed for. Right. I would say also if you have a deck that has a table and chairs or barbecue, maybe you're going to go out on the deck in the evening and cook for yourself and, you know, really enjoy the evening light. But I would say people's bedrooms, I would say living rooms in general, uh, spaces that transform from kitchen to living room to family room. People don't create the paths that you want to take and people are not intentional about the activities that they want to do within those spaces. Yeah, I heard a saying that I really liked um, that goes along the lines of energy goes where attention flows. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so what you're talking about in terms of the interior design space is creating a focal point. I wouldn't always say a focal point. You know, like having a desk in a space means that you may walk over to the desk and you may do something on that desk. But if you put that desk in the middle of the space, that desk may block you from doing other activities. You say energy goes where your attention flows. Wait. Attention flows where energy I I something yeah. <laughs> in other words what you what you what you're focusing on or what you're paying attention to is like you give your energy to it. Right. And this would be where I would jump over to uh, NPR story on the concept of nudging. Have you heard of nudging? No. Okay. So the most simple version of nudging is um, you have an apple and you want your kids to eat apples. You're like, why aren't they eating fruit? Fruit is really good for them. But if you cut the apple into slices, they eat apples 70% more. Huh. Not because the apple tastes different when it's an apple or when it's a slice, but because... Um, what you are bringing to it is the simplicity or the ease or you're making it simple so that the mind doesn't have to think about, well, do I want to eat the whole apple? You're only deciding about a little slice. And so you may eat the whole apple or you may eat half the apple, but you eat more apple. So if you create the space to nudge you into the activities that you want to do, you are utilizing the space correctly. Yeah, that reminds me of a course that I did on uh, Think Creative Collective that was suggesting that you, in your business, have a separate space just for your creative stuff that you don't bring your business work into. Just because then when you show up, you're primed for the state of creativity as opposed to all the shit that you have to get done well and i mean i would even say uh within a woodwork shop um not sharing the space with anybody else means that whatever project you're working on is still ready to go when you come back to it so you know like you can find the tape measure right and then <laughs> when you come back on 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 tuesday morning because we don't work mondays because mondays suck um <laughs> <laughs> when you come back to the space, whenever you come back to the space, it may be the middle of the night, right? You don't have to remember and do that lag time of booting up. What was I doing before? Right. But you come back and you're like, oh, this is sitting here waiting for me to come back to it. Right. And I would say a similar feeling would be uh, at the end of the evening, if you know where you're going, if you have a regular home to go to, when you finish your work, you get in your car and autopilot takes over. It's not that you're not being safe while driving. It's that you don't have to waste energy on where you're going. Right. When you come into the space, you don't want to waste energy getting to what you want to accomplish. Um, yoga studios are really good at this. <laughs> I was actually thinking about that last time I it, went to yoga. Yoga studios are really good at this. They have a shelf in a room that is a wood floor, uh, nice colors, um, and open space. And basically it says to your psyche, Hey, 
why don't we pick something off that shelf and go stretch it out and see what happens? So you walk into the room and you're like, I feel like stretching. I am not flexible. I do not (laughs) feel like stretching ever, except for in a yoga studio. (laughs) Um, But, you know, like if you put your banjo in the room, if you put it right next to the couch or you put it um, in an open space where it can breathe, where it can have life, you see the banjo, you're like, oh, I'm going to play you. But if your banjo's in the closet or in a case, you're not going to play the banjo, which is why piano players always sit down at random pianos in random spaces because we're not uh, wanting to showcase how well we play the piano. It's that the piano wants us to be there. I have that same experience whenever I go anywhere and there's a piano. Certain pianos just call me. It's like I get like my hands like just start getting pulled towards the keyboard and I can't help myself. Well, and some spaces make you self-conscious about it. You know, like the table's right there and and you're like, oh, am I playing the piano good enough? Is is this something that's benefiting the space? The piano's too tingy or or... And some spaces and some pianos work together. They're wo- yeah. they're warm. Yeah. And you play a couple notes and you're like, I'm not really even here. I'm kind of just floating above this space that exists. But now I'm able to bring the music and the colors together. And somehow this space feels right. You know what I find? That I actually play different depending on the piano and the space. Like I will play different songs and make up different melodies and and harmonies based on the tonality of the piano where the piano is strongest where it's like what it feels like what the tone colors are how good is the resonance on the piano you know if the the piano is not particularly resonant i'll play staccato things if the piano has this gorgeous like enveloping overtone to it then i will play bigger pieces right (laughs) and if the piano is grand and black (laughs) you must play a chord that is dark and low your doodle changes based on the space the musical doodle is something you know like you would get your hand slapped in classes when you would doodle on the test paper or whatever that means that i ask hey do you mind if i play your piano dude the worst trend ever right piano locks like every piano now, it has a stupid bar on it with a padlock. <laughs> and that is like saying, you're not worthy. Stop uh, the Am- touching our shit. The Americana in Glendale, California. Uh, it is a beautiful grand piano. Now it has a player piano attached to it, but the, the seat is there. The piano is there. I sit down and I play because nobody's around, because it's a beautiful open space. The chandelier is big. The windows are big. The colors are great. And you sit down and you play. And somebody comes up and says, Sir, we don't want you playing the piano. You're going to mess the piano up. And you're like... (laughs) I feel like the piano collecting dust is its soul dying slowly. Uh, Yeah. Well, not to mention, (laughs) what was that website we found, adoptapiano.com, where it's like basically they're saying, look, pianos are getting 
destroyed and thrown away and falling apart from disrepair because nobody is playing them. Yeah. And everybody thinks they want a plastic keyboard because it saves space and it's cheaper. Right. And it's easier to move. <laughs> the moving thing is is, <laughs> is is definitely valid, um, which is why it's really nice to come into a space where the piano already is, or of course, to build a studio that will be here. Well, and I was going to say too, because when you're talking about the, the color, the emotional color of a space and how that affects the piece, I feel like that is a very big part of my industry, the recording industry, is sometimes you have to go to the right studio or the right place to record your album right right um because there's almost like a a spirit that comes along with the vibration of a space that somehow i mean if you wanted to get scientific about it maybe just the psychological tone of the space affects the musician but i also feel like there's something in the energy of a space that sort of like comes through the piece and into the recording and you can hear it when you listen and that's why I think that's why cities develop a sound, not just the sociological component of the people who knew each other and the, the prevailing social conditions, but also I think that, you know, uh, Muscle Shoals being by a river, you know? <laughs> I actually, this is a tangent, sorry. Tangents are allowed and encouraged <laughs> on this podcast. Um, Democracy is messy when it comes to decorating, when it comes to creating (laughs) a city. Um, Monarchies, oligarchies, dictatorships are really good when somebody says, okay, I'm going to make a church or I'm going to make a castle and everything is going to be able to see that castle because I want them to know how amazing I am. But really what that means is there is a straight line in a city with a central meeting ground that everybody can see, everybody can participate in, whether you are rich or whether you are poor, it is something that all can experience the city equally. So it stops being uh, Beverly Hills versus San Fernando or um, uh, South Central versus Santa Monica. It is a space that you all get to say, this is my town. The beaches of California are very similar to that because you go to the beach and it doesn't matter how much money you have. The ocean is calling. The blues, uh, the sand on your toes, the experience is something for all. And I feel like intention is something that gets lost when um, the mass participates. With design in particular, there's a certain amount of decision making that has to happen. And as you and I saw when we were building the studio, I think it was difficult for you to unify all the competing concerns that I had as one person, <laughs> let alone when you get, you know, I mean, a classic example is a, a, my dad likes black and chrome, right? And my mom likes French country. So it kind of it's like they, they basically they solved it by having two different buildings. <laughs> I, right. And this is where a lot of people uh, run into problems when they're decorating a room is that you start with everything that you have and then you trade places. You move the couch and you move the chair and it still feels horrible. And you're like, why don't I have anything nice? 
(laughs) And the answer is, you probably do. You probably actually have what you need to make a space comfortable and good for the activities that you want to do and good for the people that come over and experience it. But what you have is, is too many competing things. So treat a room like a canvas, remove everything, start with your palette and bring things back in. Yeah. One at a time. That's what we had to do. One, one at a time. And if it doesn't distract, it belongs. If it distracts, remove it again. Now, you know, like you may have brought one thing in that made the other thing not work. So you can trade things out and see how it changes the room. And see, I think most importantly that I got from the process was see how it feels. Because we've been trained so much in our Western world to uh, ignore our feelings. When you're enjoying a room, it matters 100% how you feel. (laughs) and it doesn't have to be logical i mean two things could you know you think in your mind they should go together and then when you get them in the room they just don't well okay so you say logical that that always tickles a funny bone for me Um, well that was the idea that's that's what's wrong my (laughs) my, no my 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 family is very logical they are so emotional that they have their emotional response and then they logically explain why it makes sense um I've been doing a lot of reading into uh, brain science and apparently in the last 10 years, the science has jumped, it's leaped, it's moved so far forward. And really the, the big comparison is the amount of decisions your conscious brain makes pale in comparison to the decisions your subconscious make. And your subconscious is structured based on your experiences in the past. So they may be illogical, but they're still based on something. So by changing how you relate to your past experiences can change how you relate to future experiences. Change the room and the way that you relate to it and be aware when it comes back in so that you are able to figure out what feels right and what does not. And, 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 and trust that feeling because it is information and it is logical. It, yeah, it's, it is absolutely information. And just because you don't like something doesn't mean you won't like it later or you won't hate it later. I think sometimes it's just enough to notice your feelings and say, huh, that's weird. I have a really strong aversion to that chair. <laughs> I don't have to judge it. I just, I hate that chair. So you can know that. Well, but that could be as simple as your ex have, ha- having given you that chair. Or maybe it's the wrong it. color or yes. maybe it's in the wrong corner. Or maybe you hate the way you feel when you sit in it. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, a lot of times it's like, what is something for? And what am I trying to force it into? What am I trying to shoehorn this into being? Yeah, maybe, maybe it looks right, but nobody will sit in it. Maybe it's a couch you loved in a bigger house, but you have a small house right now. <laughs> and maybe that couch either needs to go, you need to let it go and give it to someone else who can love it better. Or maybe it needs to go into storage while you find a couch that fits your space and makes your little space feel big. Yeah. Bringing intention to your space will make a huge difference. I feel like that needs a silent pause. <laughs>
Here is a sneak preview of episode five. The moment that you become the photographer is not always the moment that you take the picture. The moment you become the photographer is either the moment before the photo is taken where you are being curious and going for the photo or it's the moment where you look at the print or you look at the slide and you're like man everything came together wow that's a really good photo But in my case, I was still discovering what photography was. And so I would say the moment that I really became a photographer was not when I said, wow, what a picture. It was when everybody else says, man, that's a great photo. And you're like, I took a good photo. I was in a space and I conveyed that into a medium that people appreciated I like that experience. As artists, we are super influenced by the things and the people around us. If you've ever dealt with writer's block, if you've ever dealt with feeling creatively stifled, you know it may be just as simple as your surroundings and feeling like you have an absence of choice. I remember that was kind of the issue in my studio was feeling like it wasn't my space because it was a room that a family member was basically indefinitely loaning me. And I'm like, okay, well, this works really well, but I kind of left all the old things. I don't want to step on their toes. Yeah, and it's and, and I think I felt like my entire life, and this, this is why I think rebuilding a space for me was a soul's journey. It wasn't just a thing I did. It was like a sabbatical. It was like a life, it was a life lesson. I realized really looking back that no place in my life have I ever felt like a space was truly mine. (laughs) So what that meant was that I always would, if something was in the room, like a table or something was on a table, that that would stay exactly where somebody put it because it's not mine. And then I would put things around it. Like I would set something down, but you know, somebody would be like, Steve, why don't you just clear the table? And I'd be like, because that's that's my mom's book. And it's on the coffee table, you know, but you can move it and put it back. Well, no, I can't. So there's a weird psychology that I that I have that'll go with this. Um, for me to feel like a space is mine, there will be that random thing that I set on the table. And if it's still on the table later... I will feel like I am now part of the space and now I can clean up the space because it's mine or because I have a part. Um, I have stayed at different places where, you know, like it's their space and I may set things in the space that really aren't obtrusive, but they continually get moved. Some of the funny parts of that would be like I was staying in a friend's extra room and she was afraid that the feet of my suitcase were going to cause permanent indentations into the carpet. And so I would find my suitcase in the dining room. <laughs> <laughs> you and, happen to have a lot of OCD and, friends too, by the way. <laughs> you, you know, you do attract um, a world that is similar to you, something that you understand. Expand your understanding and you will expand what is around you. Mm. Uh, suitcase in the suitcase in the dining room. Um, 
it's fine. It just means that I have to go out in my underwear to find my socks <laughs> in the open space where they are, as opposed to, you know, close the door and change my pants. Right. Right. It's not that the carpet may not be important. It's that it kind of changes what your social interaction and your interaction within the space is based on where your suitcase is. Well, and I've worked with some people, one studio in particular, where it was a private studio and the owner was wealthy and he was very, very particular about his things. And having grown up in a family that is particular about things, he liked having me around because I was super conscientious about it. But it was like to a kind of a crazy degree. Like, first of all, there were white carpets in the studio. And he wanted to invite clients to come in so he could make money with the space. But you have to take your shoes off before you get in. And Right, which is fine in certain situations. Uh, did he have sandals? No, that would have actually been a great idea. If he'd had sandals or slippers for people to slip into? But like, also, like <laughs> you know, he had like these five or six or $10,000 guitars that he'd put in these glass cases. And, and it was almost like you couldn't play it because so, your bell buckle might scratch it. So there's these beautiful instruments sitting there doing nothing. You're in a museum and he wants you to experience it like a studio. Right. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, people felt like they couldn't let go in the space. And so you walk in the space, you feel like you can't wiggle, you can't even move your, and it, it's like you said, as you're reflecting on the people around you, like I'm reminded of how I felt growing up, like I couldn't move. I had to sit up straight. I had to hold myself really tight. And I felt like I was barely breathing. Talk about mind and body connection. How you feel in your body influences your ability to express and movement matters with <laughs> expression. You know, like you said, if you've got a plant in front of the door and you got to use the door, you're going to feel like you don't want to be in the space because you walk, you're instantly pulling your arms in and you're feeling tense and you're feeling unwelcome. Well, and I would say a similar thing for me to feel comfortable wherever I am is, is to have my car close. Not because I need to get out, but because my freedom is part of my relaxation. Hmm. If I am able to know that I'm not stuck within a space, then I'm now able to participate within the space. Uh, now I'm going to get a little tangential, but earlier when we were talking about a space being yours. Right. I think increasingly as the world gets more and more populated, we're going to find people having to use a version of shared space. Well, okay, so at work, um, if you put your tools down and they get moved and then they get moved and then they get moved, what you find is, is really, I don't need a huge amount of space. I just need to know what space is mine. Right. So if we're talking about huge groups of people, uh, you don't have to have a whole room to yourself, but you need to have some place to put your keys down where the keys will remain so that you can find your keys when you leave. So make yourself a cubby. <laughs> make yourself a cubby if it is a shared space and create the space to accommodate for the group of people. Yeah, like yoga studios. I mean, like the yoga studio I go, they just have shared mats. Well, and then and the, yeah, right. And then, and then the space starts becoming like the elevator dynamic. Uh, the first person 
goes towards where the buttons are. And then the other person goes to the other side of the elevator. And then the third person comes into the center towards the front. And then the fourth person, then they shift into the four corners and so on and so forth until the space is filled. Yoga studios are large and have this shifting ability that once you've set your mat out, you're not intruding on the other person's space. They naturally fall to where the next open area so that their mind can be clear and your mind can be clear. It's I don't know. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I don't know about your yoga studio, but mine's getting pretty popular and it's small. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had to like stagger my mat just a little bit and like put my arms out and see, okay, if I like touch my arms out, am I going to run into this person's fingers? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to shift back to the store because one of the things that I love to cover on this show is artists experimenting with entrepreneurship and profitability. <laughs> so you, you, you had this relationship with a sawmill that's right next to um, the Tulip Festival, which is this huge event where 200,000 people come and every spring the tulips bloom and people descend on this little small town in Washington and take pictures of tulips. Right. And everybody asks, so how long is the festival? And the answer is, it's not up to us. <laughs> well, I remember talking to you in the first two weeks thinking that it was like a two week deal. And I'm like, has anybody come through? And you're like, no. And I'm like, uh oh. <laughs> it's been raining. The flowers haven't bloomed yet. <laughs> so my response was, hey, you should sell umbrellas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of funny because the rain is different in Washington than it is in California. Uh, rain in California, you step outside and you are drenched. So most people in California, when it rains, stay inside. Um, maybe it's only going to rain for a little bit. Maybe it's only raining two days in the year so you can sit inside. In Washington, it rains, depending on the time of year, uh, every day. Um, but you can go outside for maybe hours without getting soaked, depending on the day, depending on how much it's raining. If it's a drizzle outside, I would find that people don't bring umbrellas cause they're not going to get wet. They're going to go out to the tulips for 20 minutes or a half an hour. They're going to wander out in the rain and then they're going to go back to their car and then they're going to go have coffee. They're going to dry out and they're not worried about it. And what I would find is, is on those nice drizzly days, people would come into the studio because it wasn't raining too much for them to go outside and enjoy the space. They just weren't in a hurry to do it. So the big openness of the sawmill would be a place for them to come and walk around and enjoy the, the space and enjoy the relation to the tulips without actually getting wet yet. Right. And you also had some local photographers who, you know, probably were you, you were selling some tulip themed <laughs> stuff, right? Uh, we made some, uh, some hats, uh, with some mountains and tulips on them. We, uh, uh, uh had an artist, uh, do some blocks with, um, tulips, like with iris, yeah. uh, hyacinth, allium, gladiolus, and daffodil. Did yeah, I? they were beautiful. In fact, if you want to see some of the products are actually available on Nat's Instagram, 
uh, which which is actually really cool. Um, yeah, uh, at Silver Grain Art. Silver Grain Art. Okay. So yeah, um, and, you know, one of the things that fascinates me is that you seem to really light up when you are going through the process of designing hats. <laughs> I don't think you've ever done that before. Um, man, I am able to be so much more creative when I'm not the one creating it. <laughs> <laughs> so you were working with a, you were working presumably with a, with a company who makes hats. Uh, yeah, some really amazing artists, uh, uh, Flow Factory Northwest, also Flipside Hats. Um, and then, uh, a red umbrella design, she made the blocks for me and they were just spectacular. She had, um, a robot block that would change robots. She has a gender bender block, which would, uh, change in between, uh, what clothes the kid is wearing. And then there's a monster block. And, um, since I was going up to the tulip festival, I was like, people don't know what the flower bulbs look like. This is really an educational slash um, flower uh, enthusiast type of kids toy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I love that about product design is it, it can be very creative. And, you know, the weird part about it is probably figuring out what people will buy, but not knowing what people will buy <laughs> while you're ordering oh, and spending money man. on ordering hats and, and what things. You, and what you find out is that you live in spaces and you kind of uh, create um, things that you like based on the region that you're in and you go to a different region and what you find out is is that you really hit the mark on some things. Well, um, Washington is where you're from. I am from Washington. I really fit in there. My truck fits in there. My beard fits in there. I'm wearing the right hat. He has an epic beard. Yeah, it's it's not bad. But what you also find is, is there's certain things that I've been in California, you know, like I'm up there. I've always made random sounds with my voice and I go, and the guy's like, wow, you're from California. And, and, <laughs> what? And, and you're like, huh? Well, I have listened to hip hop, if that's what you mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, granted, that's that's the thought that comes to mind afterwards. I am a younger generation, also. So, but you know, I'd hang out with music people in LA. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for part two of my interview with Nat Magnuson. Follow him on Instagram at great art and subscribe so you'll be the first to get it. Good night.